The uh, blessings which we recited tonight are very intimately related to this development of metta. You will be missing some of the blessings of life if you have not cultivated metta. Some of them are implied in the blessings, but these blessings also bring us back to earth and make us realize also that metta, loving kindness, is practical and you abide in your life on this earth in loving kindness. It's not an impractical thing that you can only do in remote forest monasteries. It has a lot of uh, robust durability, actually. And I hope that you know, you've cultivated it to some degree. And if there are any feelings of resistance to this, you know, that's what happens when you grow up. <laughs> you get resistant to everything. You have to figure your way out in ordinary life and you get your, you get your ways of doing things. And they might work for you, but, you know, being an amateur philosopher out there, when you have a little time off from your work and so forth, is, might not be surprising if you don't come up with the best tactics for life. There's a huge demand on your time and your energies, and so for you just to figure that out in your spare time is quite a demand. So that's why we, we look for people around us or in history that have exceptional reputations for this. I mean, I wouldn't want to have to have worked out theory of relativity on my own, my spare time. It's nice that Einstein had enough time to do it. So we take advantage of the fact that other people are brilliant in certain areas, and that's a beautiful opportunity to share, in fact, to not only to give things, but also to receive things with gratitude. And so we go to the Buddha for these exceptionally wise and intelligent reflections on the nature of human existence. And that's what Dhamma is and Buddhism is. A very mature and wise person has sorted out what the priorities are, basically, in life. Buddhism is not anti rational or anti-reason and it's not anti the external world it's not non-materialist because the buddha realizes this is all of the structures of ordinary life you just have to deal with the material facts of life and it would be good in fact to know have some knowledge about how things work and so one of the blessings in there is that to be well educated and skilled in craft so you know how to do things and that's a blessing the buddha is not ignoring that very few buddhists are monks and very few buddhists are nuns and they're ordinary people that work in the world and raise kids and all that kind of stuff but that doesn't mean that the higher mind cannot be attained in the lay life i think i'm pretty confident to say that more lay people in the time of the Buddha, attain enlightenment than monks or nuns in terms of total numbers, but not in terms of percentage. So a higher percentage of monks and nuns attain some gradation of benefit as high as full enlightenment, but numerically 
probably more lay people attained some stage of enlightenment and great benefits, and in a very large ratio, probably 10 to 1 or 100 to 1 even. The only ultimately exalted state that disallows you from continuing in the lay life is the final stage of enlightenment, the arahant. It can be attained while a lay person, but after that, you're out of there. (laughs) You're in the robes. (laughs) After the third stage, you can function in the lay life. You might be slightly, well, you might have a bit of a reputation for being shy or a little bit withdrawn. At that point, there's a very strong ethical element to one's consciousness, and one just cannot do certain things. And you have a very minimal, real interest in the external world. You're extremely satisfied within. Your spiritual life is the place that you live, and you really don't need much else. In the lower stages of enlightenment, still people continue in the lay life, the household life. They raise kids, they deal with things, they have relatives that are not enlightened, and they still have to deal with them. (laughs) Sometimes you can share a very intimate life with people who are unenlightened. And that's just the nature of your karmic situation but it does not impede the, the possibilities of your progress in the spiritual development or your emotional development. Loving-kindness metta is something to be woven in, and it's not really separate from any of these blessings. If you're angry or particularly greedy or ambitious, all of these things, they will interfere with the accumulation of these blessings in your life. Notice one of them is to have relatives in need. That's considered a blessing to be able to help out people who are in your extended family in some way. If you're hostile and self-obsessed, then that blessing is not available to you. At the same time, though, because of loving-kindness for yourself... It causes you to separate from the foolish. And that is the first blessing of life. A person full of loving kindness is not a doormat. Because that wouldn't be loving kindness. Would you want anybody else to be a doormat? Not if you have loving kindness. So why would you want to be a doormat? So goodwill and profound loving kindness is not negligent about one's own well-being and dignity. And so that is why one blesses oneself by separating from the foolish, because it's just not kind unless you're involuntarily subject to the foolish. It's not kind to subject yourself to that dysfunction and abrasion unless you cannot get out of it. And the second part of loving-kindness is a motivation to associate with the wise. So you'll see this come later on in the sutta as well, visiting spiritual people, talking about dhamma, practicing these things, cultivating the higher states, getting on the right track. The Buddha has set it up so that monks and nuns can go off and just do it full-time. And then there's a kind of an open door to the monastery back and forth, between the lay life and the monastery, the lay life and the monastery. So you can 
sometimes immerse yourselves there, sometimes just visit. There's always an opportunity to hear a little bit of Dhamma and just to pick up on another way of life. Lots of cultures have no monastic structures in them, and they, they're a little bit perplexed by the whole idea of... It is a strange thing to see some men waltz off into the forest and just live out there. Apparently, it's hard to figure out what's their motive and what are they doing and what are they like that, you know, what's that about? And if you don't have monastic structures or those higher contemplative possibilities, you won't know why about that part of life. So the Buddha is setting up special conditions. If you want to, you go into that and you abide full-time your whole life in that. And he just trusts that there will be secondary benefits. He also sets up a few situations where he's going to basically make sure there's some benefits. One is that you're not allowed to raise your own food or keep your own food, so you have to get fed once a day by somebody who's a layperson. So that guarantees you don't become this totally isolated hermit. I think a lot of monks might like that. Christian monasteries, some of the monasteries are self-supporting, so the monks do raise all their own food. They have a little bit of interaction and everything, but the Buddha is really depriving us of that possibility for a very deliberate reason. He says, you know, I'm not asking much, but you can't really become completely hermetic. You need to make contact for your food, and this will benefit everybody. So it's a unique and beautiful and strange arrangement. If you're raised in the Western culture, you know, it's a little bit opaque what this is all about. But once you get used to going to the monasteries and it starts to become, oh, right, it makes perfect sense. <laughs> it's good stuff. <laughs> so this is, this is one of the blessings, is to get your foot in the door at the monastery and visiting back and forth and working on things and realizing what you can do with your mind. So the monks are spending all their time exploring this and having to face the challenges of their own solitude, for instance. I mean, it's not natural to humans to really dwell in solitude without any intimacy. And this is something that you're forced to do as a monk. Of course, some are already inclined that way. But I think most monks that come in aspire to that. But the human nature has to be retrained. But there's great things when you train yourself like that new vistas appear. And then you get a chance to share that or share the, at least the enthusiasm for that and to encourage others. And this is what the Buddha does as well. He's encouraging people to always ask for more, always aspire to more growth. Keep that up. And it certainly has nothing to do with age. There's quite a few instances in the suttas where somebody goes forth as a monk at 80 or even there's one at 100 years old becomes a monk at 100 <laughs> and attains enlightenment as well so it's not a matter of that you cannot grow I, I, they had a complete conviction and full examples continuously of, that the brain so called or the mind is flexible and can grow and develop if you exercise it. Buddhism is all about that, about creating new depths, always aspiring for more, endless practice, 
but endless practice in the right way. So it's always right effort. And that right effort is not painful effort. It's not harsh effort. It's right effort. And it's really an invitation to enjoy your life. And you can't enjoy your life if you abide in the hindrances. There's no joy there. It's rough. You can only enjoy yourself when you can abide outside of those hindrances and in some form of positive, wholesome mental states, emotional states. And then you enjoy your life. And the Buddha is saying, and that's what you have to practice, which is kind of like an invitation to eat chocolate cake all day. You know, He's inviting you to step into the beautiful. That's your job. Your job is to step into the beautiful and to step out of the harsh, the abrasive, the debilitating, the circular. What I mean by the circular is the stories that go round and round and round in your head endlessly. <laughs> it's like one of those belt sanders. <laughs> You're going to get sanded down by the circulating hindrances. They just wear you down. So the Buddha is having none of this. Notice in Buddhist teachings there is no particular benefit described of investigating circles. We're interested in stepping out of circles. The whole major theme is to get out of the circle of samsara. Samsara is a circle. And do you ride around in it? Do you talk to it or anything? No, you step out of it. You get off the merry-go-round. The stories are circular. They're little microcosmos of samsara. And you're trying to pull the plug on it. You might say that the circular part of your mind is this avijja, which you see in that circle of dependent origination at 12 o'clock on there is this thing called avijja, which is ignorance and the root cause of all your problems. And off the chart, before avijja, at 11 o'clock is death. But it's very strange because death is not the cause of ignorance. They go in this sequence, so ignorance is the proximate cause for the rising of these decisions and decisions Sankaras are the proximate cause for the rising of consciousness, structures, and so forth. But death is not the cause for the rising of ignorance. There's really nothing much to do with each other. But what does come before that are the five hindrances. They're the energy structures that maintain your confusion, your misdirection. And so that's why I'm always on about the five hindrances. If you can just step out of them quickly and repetitively and habitually, and into the safe zone, your confusion subsides. You don't really have to work through it analytically or anything. You don't have to work through your stories, your hindrance stories, anger stories, and sorrow stories, and desire stories, and agitation and confusion stories. You don't have to work through those. You don't have to process the stories. You just get points for every time you stop the story and walk away. Stop it, walk away. Don't talk. Don't get into the dialogue. <laughs> Don't talk about it. Drop it, walk away. Drop it, walk away. Drop it, walk away. And you're reconditioning your mind. And every now and then, you drop into a good neighborhood where you're feeling well. And the dialogue is, ah, people are just ignorant, whatever. <laughs> they don't know any better. What am I thinking? May they all be well. Yeah, you dropped into a good neighborhood there. And then the Buddhists say, stay there as long as you can. 
If you do some sleepwalking and end up on the outside of the gated community, you'll just have to make sure you don't get caught in a really bad neighborhood, but make it back in your pajamas, barefoot, back to the in behind the gated, <laughs> the gate to the gated community where it's safe. <laughs> and that sleepwalking is exactly what we do. You know, in the monastery, you're told, you know, pep talks, coachings, and get on the zone and everything, but it's very easy once you get out to just drift away and find yourself standing there on the street in your bare feet in your pajamas, just wondering how you got there into this street fight. <laughs> how did I get here? How did I do this again? That does happen, but the Buddha is just saying, stop, walk away, get back to the good neighborhood, move in, stay in the good heart. So after a week of this, and I guess tomorrow is our closing circle, so this will be the last of the Dhamma talks, but I, I hope to send you back and people will wonder what happened to you, why you're speaking Pali <laughs> and hugging strangers on the street. <laughs> what? Where were you? In the summer of love or what? <laughs> This is what I hope to preserve here, this, the last remnants of the Summer of Love. You know, the Summer of Love, uh, it's too bad they didn't have better direction. They had the right idea, but they didn't have the technical skills, you know. They were onto the right thing. The words were there, Summer of Love. But the Summer of Love is a lot of work. It's gardening, you know. You really have to know your gardening. And you really have to know the water holes as well. So monastery is a water hole, place to go, and refresh yourself and get new energy and good instructions because you meet difficulties and you get tangled out there and everything. This is what, of course, how could young uh, Westerners know how to manage? They had the, the good intention, but how to manage that, you know, how to, how to live in a positive, uplifting, emotional way, in a committed and beautiful way. It's not so easy to sustain, and they didn't have the, the infrastructure for it. And, of course, the infrastructure is just pretty small at the time. And we go to a place like Thailand where there's a temple across every street. There's just continuous reminders in the environment. So we're doing pretty well. I mean, uh, especially all of you that make the journeys to the monasteries are doing very, very well to use the resources, the limited resources we have in a very beautiful and productive way. Uh, considering the odds, my own sense of the odds against developing much of a Buddhist Sangha in the West within hundreds of years, or even maybe not at all, I mean, I'm amazed at how well it's worked. Maybe I, I should have not underestimated the Buddha. It didn't seem like it would work, but it's working quite well in a strange, almost geometrical doublings every now and then. So it's beautiful to be a part of it, and as you get more spend more time, you become seasoned. And the, the atmosphere in this monastery has changed since the early days. It was kind of rough and people didn't know quite how to behave. And I, the whole atmosphere is quite smooth and experienced now. And you get new people coming in as well. And when there's 10 people who have been to the monastery half a dozen times and there's one new person, it's quite a, it's impacted by the experience. And this is loving kindness, right? I get to read the application forms we have. 
And pretty well, I'd say about 80% under, you got anything you know, like medical conditions or mental things or psychiatric needs or special things. Yeah, it's a lot. <laughs> it's not mm, severe, but it's amazing the percentage of this society that has some pretty significant stuff to trundle along with them, you know. Piedasi is our wonderful office steward, and she, the instructions are, if they're all experienced, they've been here before and everything, then they're in. But anything that needs to be reflected on, send it to me, and I'll okay it. So I get a lot sent to me. <laughs> so this is loving kindness. This is my second favorite part of monastery. It's not just that supermen walk through the door, superhumans walk through the door. It's not just a place for the gifted, but people who have not met with good fortune out there walk through this door and who do not have good friends and have not found good company and somehow they manage to get here. And experience for me is to just welcome them with honest, loving kindness. I really do. When I walk up to that door, I see all kinds of strangers that are looking for their room or what they've never been here and I just say so is your first time here what's your name and everything and I love them you know I love them right there and now and I'm so happy to be in that fortunate position welcome to our place here how long are you staying and when are you coming back and it is amazing how appreciative they are and how much happens to relieve what needs to be relieved. So this is the expression of loving kindness also. And, you know, it took a lot of money, a lot of time, a lot of effort to build a place like this and find a place like this and to train people and all this kind of stuff. We have to have people who run this place. That's a really fun part too. Like, who is the next mystery steward? Who's going to walk through that door? It's just so much fun. A whole spectrum of possibilities. And once you do walk through that door as a steward, you're never the same again. <laughs> it's a different thing in your life, and it's a great formation. So so many practical elements of this loving-kindness. And if you develop loving-kindness, then you have to reflect on those blessings and whether you're giving yourself those blessings in your life. Go through those blessings and make sure that you're, you know, they don't drop out of heaven. They're active blessings. The Buddha is saying, bless yourself and find the motivation to. And you will find it in goodwill for yourself and others. You will find the right balance between the needs of others and your own needs. Loving kindness makes you intelligent in that sense of judgment about what you need and what others need, how much you owe others and how much time you need to devote to them and how much time you need for yourself, and this is the balance. And the Buddha endlessly talks about the stories of balance between couples and with the family and in monasteries between the the monks and the lay people and so forth. There's balance. There's always there's a give and take and there's an addressing of both sides of the equations. Of course, it can't happen ever any other way. If everybody took care of everybody else but nobody took care of themselves, then everything would fall apart, that's all. <laughs> So this is a skill and a craft, the craft of the heart, and it is the root of the 
intelligence of how to proceed skillfully in your life to bless yourselves. And the way to do it is just the way you have done it is to remove yourself from time to time for good companionship and listen to Dhamma in a very quiet, conducive, serene environment. Let it soak in. Some of these things, it may not hit your mind at the time, but might come up a long time afterwards, just a few phrases. And also just moments. You may not be able to sustain it, but you have moments. Those moments when loving-kindness emerges, you will remember them. You can go back and touch them. I remember in, uh, when I was in Thailand, and this is a long time ago, I was in Thailand, 27 years back, or 20, 26 years or so, I was out washing my bowl, and the, there's a kind of a concrete apron around the sala in the forest, and... I was washing my bowl and just... And one of the thing, features of Thailand, and especially in the forest, is ants. A lot of ants. And you're in a kind of a perpetual balancing act with ants. So they don't get into your kuti, but you can't kill an ant. You know, it's part of your vinaya, right? You can't... You're, you're in this continuous... And they, there's a lot of skills to this, <laughs> this thing. <laughs> and... Um, I'm sitting out there and I'm, I've just washed the bowl and I'm just drying it off and I'm sitting on the sidewalk and, and I see an ant and it's just walking and winding. And I realize, you know, what it's, it's out here because this is duty. It's got to go out and get something and bring it back to the colony. Like, how else are you going to live? And every time you step out of that ant's nest, you're in danger of your life. Every second, it's just, there's two things on your mind. What can I get to eat? Who's going to eat me? And it's, these little guys are brave and loyal and hardworking. And they have to ignore the pain. They are out there for the sake of the community to get something to keep the whole thing going. And they're risking their lives. And when they snap one of their little legs, they cannot stop. They have to keep up their duties, you know. And I just, at that moment, I just had this flood of loving kindness for this determined and intelligent and sophisticated and feeling little creature. And he is feeling. He does feel pain. He knows what fear is. It causes him to try to hide. He knows what he has to do. And so there's a very sophisticated little being there. And, you know, it's very easy to get completely, to see them as just dust or inanimate or something like that. But it's not the case. This world is just teeming with conscious, feeling, sensitive beings. And they're not just out to bother you. They're trying to just live for another day. That's what they're trying to do. And when I felt that, I thought, wow, you know, I've, I've come a long way. So I, I, in my early days, I went off to be a hermit as a layperson for some years in a kind of broken-down shack with ants. And I had taken a you know, real vow to not kill any insects and there was a lot of insects around. This is Canada in the Coast Mountains. And 
And I get this regular, every year, an invasion of these big black carpenter ants. And I would just have to catch them in a dustpan and put them outside. Catch them in a dustpan and put them out. <laughs> and in the first year, I thought, I wonder how long this is going on, because weeks of this. Sweep them out, put them outside. Sweep them out, put them outside. And they, they could just, it was a leaky, broken shack. So I thought, why me? Like, why, why do I have to do this, you know? This is like trying to live with one hand tied behind your back. I always had mice and pack rats as well. And no killing, right? No solving this problem easily. So I'm feeling quite vulnerable and quite immersed in these kind of things. And I'm thinking, this is, this is a hard way to live, isn't it? <laughs> you know, if I was not thinking about this, I just, you know, get a rat trap, get a poison it, and poison everything, and <laughs> have done with it. You know, what do, what do people do? Thinking, you know, this is an interesting challenge, but I'm, I am going to stay with this. But I stayed with it out of duty and the respect for the ethic and everything, but it, it was somewhat lacking in true loving kindness for them. So when I finally experienced a genuine appreciation of this thing's life, a change had taken place, you know, kind of an irreversible appreciation of this. It was a different experience altogether. And whenever I think of that, and I haven't thought of it for a long time, but it somehow it just popped up in my mind, it moves me. So a moment like that is not lost. What a strange thing. 26 years ago, an ant on the sidewalk and I'm still talking about it <laughs> as if it was a great love affair I had one time with a Russian ballerina, you know. <laughs> it's that important. In fact, I can't remember that name of that Russian ballerina, but I do remember that ant. <laughs> no, there was no Russian ballerina. <laughs>